Well, good morning, North Wake. Glad to see you here this morning. And welcome those of you who are joining us live stream. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, so please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15. We'll beginning in verse 21, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. I've titled the message, The Crucifixion of the Son of God. Have you ever experienced a life-changing event? Sometimes you have a life-changing event, even a, a, a game-changing event takes place. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a football game. The Packers were playing the Buccaneers. Those of you who are Packers fans, I'm sorry for bringing this up. The Packers were up 10 to zero. They were dominating, right? Until Aaron Rodgers threw a bad pass. It was intercepted and run back for a touchdown. That was a pivot, a pivot place in, in this particular game. It was game changing. The Buccaneers went on to win 38 to 10. 38 unanswered points. Perhaps in your own life you can think of a time or an event that was game changing or life altering, as it were, a hinge point in your life where everything either took place before that event or takes place after that event. You know, in a couple of days, we'll have a very important election. It will set the trajectory of our nation for the next four years. Millions of people are impacted by this. It, in fact, it may seem like the most important event in your lifetime at least according to your mailbox and the amount of material you're getting about the election. But this morning I want to consider an event that is unimaginably more important than even the election. You see, it's the difference between the size of the earth versus the size of the sun. There is no comparison. Look at this video for perspective. The sun is 1.3 million times larger than the earth. Think about that. You can put 1,300,000 earths into the sun. There is no comparison. Similarly, what happened 2,000 years ago to Jesus on the cross is unimaginably more significant than anything that will happen in the next couple of days. You see, what happened on a wooden cross is the most significant event in human history, even though it was 2,000 years ago when the Son of God gave up his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? That term, by the way, is used in the Old Testament. It refers to, uh, it can be used to refer to angels or the nation of Israel or the king of Israel. In the New Testament, it is used of believers who become the children of God. 
But when Jesus is declared the son of God, it is used in a unique way. He's the son in a way that we are not. For example, Mark tells us as he records what Jesus told about his second coming when he says concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, no one, not even the angels nor the son. Notice how the son is distinct from rest, the rest of humanity. See, he has a special, unique relationship with God. You remember at his baptism when Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven declaring, this, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This relationship was even acknowledged by the, the demons. It says in Mark 3.11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Jesus tells a parable of the wicked tenants about a a person who planted a vineyard and went away to a far country. But when it was time to receive the produce of the land, he sent his servants. And the tenants, some of them they beat and some of them they killed. But then we read, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. See, this parable represents God who sent prophets to Israel and some they beat and some they killed until finally he sent his one and only son. You see, even at his trial, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And so what Mark is doing, he is emphasizing the unique sonship of Jesus in his gospel. The way he begins the gospel in Mark 1, he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, showing us what he's going to emphasize in the gospel. And the gospel closes in this passage today, we'll see that the centurion, when he sees, a Roman centurion, when he sees the way that Jesus died, he cries out, truly, this one, this man was the Son of God. Mark is emphasizing Jesus as the Son of God. And so this morning we will see the crucifixion of the Son of God. I want to highlight three things in this text. First of all, the humiliation of the Son of God. As he carries his cross, was mocked, stripped, and publicly crucified as a criminal. Secondly, we'll see the death of the Son of God. After six hours on the cross, being forsaken by the Father after a loud cry, he breathed his last. And then the burial of the Son of God. Before nightfall, he was removed from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, wrapped and laid in a tomb with a stone rolled against the entrance, which was witnessed by several women. So let's join together in prayer. Father, now as we hear these words and as we meditate upon them, Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant grace to us to hear. To hear and to receive, to believe. To know that you gave of your only son the greatest event in history, that we might have life, that we might be changed forever. And so Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So first of all, the humiliation 
of the Son of God, starting in verse 21. Verse 20, it ends by saying, they led him out to crucify him. And then it says, they, then they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so we see here the humiliation of the Son of God. He was humiliated by what people did to him and by what people said to him. So first of all, by what people did to him. Let me just mention five things quickly. First, he was made to carry his cross to the place of the skull. Now those who were crucified were normally required to carry their own cross. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus began by carrying his own cross, but because he was so severely beaten, he was too weak. And so the soldiers forced someone by the name of Simon to help Jesus. We don't know a lot about Simon. We know that he had two children, uh, Alexander and Rufus. We know that he was from Cyrene. But the focus of the text isn't on Simon, it's on Jesus who is carrying his cross but he's too weak and beaten to carry his own cross that someone else must assist him. And he was crucified at a place called the Skull. Just outside the city, it's known as Golgotha in Aramaic or Calvary according to the Latin derivative. The name may be associated with the death or the capital punishment that was carried out there. You see, where you have skulls, there you have death. Others suggest that it may be the place that it was uh, a hill that looked like a large skull. But Jesus is being humiliated. Secondly, we see he was, he was mocked being offered wine mixed with myrrh in verse 23. Now, wine was often given as an act of mercy to those condemned criminals to, to dull their pain. As a matter of fact, it says in Proverbs 31, 6, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Myrrh was often added to flavor the wine, especially fine wines. But you see, it was given to him by the soldiers and this is just another act of, of mockery to one who claimed in their eyes to merely be the king of the Jews. But Jesus refuses to drink this wine. You say, well, why, why would he do that? Perhaps he didn't want to give in to the mockery and instead he chose to faith, 
face this death with dignity and with courage. And he persevered in receiving the full cup of the wrath of God that he knew that was before him, even as he prayed in the garden. Third, he was stripped of his clothes. Verses 24 and 25. Verse 24 starts, it says, and they crucified him. The crucifixion, as you know, was a form of capital punishment. One person said it was a weapon of terror. It was not simply a form of execution, it was a form of torture, intended to be a slow form of death, often taking days. One author wrote, the Romans used crucifixion to bring mutinous troops under control, to break the will of conquered peoples and to wear down rebellious cities under siege, reserved for only the the most dangerous criminals. Wasn't every criminal that was crucified, only the most dangerous ones. As a matter of fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you were exempt from this sort of death penalty. You were exempt because they viewed it as being too much of a barbarous form of punishment. And so there he is on the cross. Cicero calls it the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, said it was the most miserable of deaths. It was designed for maximum punishment and torture. And yet there Jesus is on the cross and the soldiers divide his clothes, like dividing the plunder in a war. Now this may have been a common occurrence. Certainly it was something that happened before, but it's also the fulfillment of scripture Repeatedly, Mark quotes from, uh, from Psalm 22 to show that what is happening is part of God's plan, that this is something that was prophesied. Psalm 22:18 says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, this was but another act of humiliation. Jesus is dying on the cross. He has nothing left. He's about to die. And they take the only thing that he has left. And Mark informs us that this, is the, this happened on the third hour of the day. 9 a.m., Jesus was publicly crucified in broad daylight. And he, fourthly, he was mocked as being a king. It was common to identify the particular crime of the individual uh, by putting a placard above the person. And here, John tells us that it was in three languages. It was Aramaic, Greek, and Latin the king of the Jews, not the king of Israel. And what this demonstrates is that Jesus was condemned for being a pretend uh, royal pretender, that he claimed to be the Messiah. And so they call him the king of the Jews, a title used for mockery by Jesus's opponents. When Mark's readers are reading this gospel to them, It is a sign of encouragement and hope. Remember what Pilate wrote, what what I have written, I have written. It will not be changed. And then Jesus was crucified as a criminal. Verse 27. The two crucified with Jesus were probably companions of Barabbas who was arrested for rebellion and murder. And there they are on the right and on the left of Jesus. 
with Jesus being the chief criminal in the middle. You remember back, just a few chapters back in, in, in the Gospel of Mark where James and John asked to be on Jesus' right and left. And now there are two criminals there. Jesus' glory comes through suffering and sacrifice, not through conquest. But he's humiliated not just by what people did to him, but also by what people said to him. There are three groups. The first group is those who are passing by. What this tells us is that the place where they crucified people was on a, a major thoroughfare where people would pass by. It was done for, to maximize the shame and the humiliation of the person crucified. And so the public that once cried cries of shouts of Hosanna now turn and are mocking Jesus. Literally it says that they are blaspheming him which is interesting because the very one who was accused of blasphemy now is receiving the blasphemy of others. Again, this is reminiscent of Psalm 22, verse seven, which says, all who seek me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Shaking one's head was a sign of of contempt and spite. And so they said to Jesus, you who claim to that you could rebuild the temple in three days. Now they're mocking him because if he could do that, certainly he could save himself. But but listen to the irony here. By dying on the cross, Jesus is bringing an end to the sacrificial system as the one who was the final and fullest sacrifice that was needed. All the other sacrifices pointed to this sacrifice. And so his body becomes the new temple. He was mocked by those who passed by. He was mocked by the religious leaders. We're told the the chief priests and the scribes mocked Jesus. Interestingly, they're not talking to him, they're not talking to Jesus, they're talking to themselves. It's as if they are congratulating themselves on getting rid of Jesus. Again, Psalm 22, verse six is appropriate where it says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people as Jesus receives these insults and is being mocked. They even admit that Jesus healed others, but Jesus is viewed as a failure, why? Because he's unable to save himself. Again, do you see the irony here? Jesus stays on the cross to be a sacrifice for them, to offer his life as a ransom for many. But not not also we see that it's not just the, those who pass by, it's not just the religious leaders, it's the criminals. The very people that Jesus is crucified with mock him. And this is the ultimate in shame and humiliation when, when, when crim, other criminals are, are mocking you, it's the lowest of the low. Uh, this reminded me of a song by a Christian musician, his name is Michael Card. He has a song called Why? And he asks the question, these very profound questions, like why did it have to be a friend who cho- who ch- that, that betrayed the Lord? And he asks another question, why did he have to die on a cross? And here's his response in the song. He says, it was a cross, for on a cross a thief was supposed to pay, and Jesus had come into the world to steal every heart away. What was the crime of Jesus? 
The one who was innocent, he committed no crime, and yet he was, he's on a cross to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what his crime is? His crime is that when we see, when we look at him, and we see the sacrifice that he made, his crime is stealing our affections as one who gave himself in our place. That's his only crime. He was humiliated. He did no wrong. He did everything right. He lived a perfect life. He healed the masses. He taught the people. And yet, he's humiliated. Why? For us. He's humiliated for us. What we deserved, he takes. Secondly, we see the death of the Son of God. Not just the humiliation, but the death of the Son of God. Beginning in verse 33. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So let me just point out a few things about Jesus' death first. His death was preceded by darkness over the land in verse 33. We see this. From the sixth to the ninth hour would have been from noon to 3 p.m. Darkness over the land. This most likely signifies the judgment of God that Jesus receives that was due to us. Remember the Exodus when Israel left Egypt, there was the ninth plague, darkness over the land for three days. And here, darkness in the land for three hours. We read in the Old Testament about how the, the terrifying day of the Lord will be darkness. It says in Amos 8 9, on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And therefore, the, this darkness indicates God's displeasure and judgment as Jesus receives the penalty that was due to us. Now, we don't know what caused the darkness, but clearly for Mark, it was a supernatural event. Something extraordinary happened like nothing else. This is the event of all events, the death of the Son of God. We also see that this, his death included being forsaken by the Father. As Jesus cries out again, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry is somewhat surprising because Jesus had been silent since he spoke to Pilate and now he cries out with a great voice, it says. 
The focus is on the agonizing suffering and aloneness of the Son of God. Jesus is experiencing the full weight of the cup of the judgment of God. He is suffering to pay for the sins of the many, inaugurating the new covenant. And yet we know from Mark's gospel that this was necessary. Jesus told us several times, it is necessary for the Son of God to suffer these things. And when he cries out and says, Eloi, Eloi, or the Hebrew, Eli, Eli, people think he's, he's referring to Elijah because of the similar sounding word. And so somebody runs and offers him sour wine, probably again a, a further act of mockery as Jesus was on the verge of death. Perhaps the purpose was to propone, pro, uh, prolong his death so that they can continue to mock him. And we also see in Jesus' death that it was witnessed by many. And here you have the witness of the centurion and the women. Now, Jesus utters a loud cry, it says, and breathed his last. And at that moment, the temple, of the, of the, the curtain temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Interestingly, usually those who were crucified did not have the strength to cry out, and yet Jesus cries out, indicating that this is voluntary. He is still in control. He willingly gives his life. And so the tearing of the temple curtain is a direct act of God. This, as Daniel mentioned, this tearing of the temple, that which separated people from the presence of God is now ripped, is now torn. Access is given. Through his sacrificial death, Jesus and his followers now have direct access to the Father. This is amazing if you think about it. The whole temple structure was guarding the presence of God. Now that the curtain has been rent and torn into access has been provided. We are invited to come into the presence of God. This, this evening at six o'clock, we're having a prayer meeting where we're invited to come and to pray. We have incredible privilege of being invited to the very throne room of God and to present our requests to him. It's interesting that it says that the, the curtain was torn, it was ripped. Because that word, that same verb was used earlier in Mark at Jesus' baptism. You remember when it, when it says that the, the heavens were ripped, were torn. And what happened? A voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. And here, the temple is, the, the curtain of the temple is torn into and then you have the centurion making the same confession. Truly, this man was the son of God. You see, the cry of the centurion signified the true identity of Jesus as the son of God. And it also shows the acceptance of God accepting the Gentiles as a Roman centurion makes this amazing confession. One person put it this way, said shockingly, it is this Gentile centurion who first recognizes the true uh, identity of Jesus. His divine sonship and messianic identity are confirmed, not through conquest, again, but through suffering. Another author said, 
It is ironic that, Jesus, that the Jewish leadership and onlookers mock Jesus, but a hated Roman soldier makes the greatest human confession in the entire gospel. A Roman centurion confessing when he sees Jesus and how he died, truly this man was the son of God. You never know who God will use to declare the truth. He can use rocks, he can use children, he can use you, and he can use me. And sometimes it is the ones that seem farthest from God that he draws to himself. Here a Roman centurion, I just read yesterday, a friend posted on social media that 45 years ago yesterday, he was an unchurched atheist. Two street preachers preached the gospel to him. That night, he was saved. 45 years later to this day, he's, he's probably one of the greatest New Testament scholars that I know. God takes people who are far from him and he delights to bring them close. And this, this testimony of the centurion is there, but you also see the testimony of the women. The disciples had fled, but the women remained ministering to Jesus. They were there, they witnessed his death, they witnessed his burial, and they will witness his subsequent resurrection. And so this brings us quickly to the last point, the burial of the Son of God, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. You see, Jesus was buried on the day of preparation by Joseph. See, around three o'clock, six hours on the cross, Jesus died. But he needed to be buried before sundown according to Jewish custom. You see, it was Friday. It was the day before the, Sab- before the Sabbath. We call it Good Friday. And so Joseph, this leader and member of the Sanhedrin, he demonstrates that not all the leaders opposed Jesus. He was a one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he takes the body of Jesus and gives it a proper burial. According to Jewish custom, the corpse would be washed, wrapped in linen cloth and spices and put into this tomb. But we know that this is not the end of the story. Jesus' burial place, in verse 47, it tells us, was known by at least two women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, know where they laid him. And they return on Sunday, the third day, to anoint the body of Jesus. But you know the story, don't you? When they arrive, the body is not there. Jesus is not there. He's risen from the dead. You see, this story, what happened on Friday, is the greatest event that ever took place. 
but it's only great because of Sunday. You see, but because of Sunday, Friday means everything. When the Son of Man was humiliated, he died and he was buried in order to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, what happened 2,000 years ago was the most important event in history. And so, I, and so I, I say to you, if you do not know this one as your personal savior, Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you, you can trust in him, but repent of your sins, believe in him, place your faith in Christ, that he was pierced for your transgressions, that he was killed for your sins that you can have newness of life. And today, this day, will be a hinge in your life that everything will hinge around this day when you became a follower of Christ. Everything is either before or after it. And if you already trust Christ, then delight in the fact that your sins are forgiven, that all of your sins have been washed white as snow, that you can cast your burdens on Christ because he cares for you. Marvel in the grace and the mercy and the love of a God who loved us so much that he spared not his only son, but gave him up for us all.